0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up
1: now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for March 23rd, 2017. The Plain Softball with Neil edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. With me in the Slate DC studio is, of course, Face the Nations John Dickerson. Howdy, John. Hello, David. And Emily Beaselbob is with us from New Haven.
1: (laughs) Hello, Emily.
2: Hi. You forgot my name. I went to Cuba for a week and my name flitted out of your brain, and Um, a strange one appeared. Uh, How
1: was it in Cuba?
2: Oh, I so interesting. But if you get me started, we won't be able to do our I told show, so I told I'll Emily we later. couldn't
0: talk about it cuz it would make it would fill me with jealousy and I couldn't talk oh, about okay. it. Okay. So we can't talk about it. Okay. And also, we have to do a show. Before we get started with the show, just we have a special treat this week. We're taping on Thursday and we're expecting a house vote on Aka or Achu as Emily likes to call it. Uh, the healthcare, care, um, Trump care, Ryan care bill on Thursday and it's the bill is going to happen after we tape. So we're not going to talk about that bill today on the show. Um, just a heads up on that. But we're going to tape a special show tomorrow. So we'll have a second show tomorrow, Friday for you. Um, that'll just be about ACA. two GabFest for the price of one this week. And that price is zero dollars. So great. On this week's show, or today's show, I should say, we have Jim Comey's double whammy. He says that his FBI is investigating Russian interference in the election and connections to the Trump campaign with that interference, potentially. And he also squashes President Trump's claim that President Obama wiretapped him. Uh, Or he dismisses it, I should say, maybe not squashes. Then Neil Gorsuch, Uh, has easy-peasy nomination hearings, confirmation hearings before the Senate. Then the prosecutor, the cop killer, and the governor, a very interesting, disturbing tale from Florida that we'll dig into. And we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we're going to tell you the books that you need to read before you start college, before you start working, and before you get married. If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash plus. And we have a special note from our overlords at Slate headquarters, which is that for all you Slate podcast fans who have been curious about Slate Plus bonus segments, but have never signed up for Slate Plus and gotten the chance to hear them, you can now hear them free for 90 days. If you download Slate's new iOS app at slate.com slash app, you can get all the benefits of Slate Plus for three months at slate.com slash app. And one more quick announcement, which is that we have a live show in D.C. coming up Wednesday, May the 10th at the Warner Theater, slate.com slash live for tickets. It's going to be a great show, May the 10th in D.C., Warner Theater, slate.com slash live. James Comey testified before Congress this week about the FBI's investigation of Russian meddling in the presidential election. He was very sparse on details, but Comey did confirm or make two critical points. First, he confirmed that the FBI is in fact investigating Russian meddling that would benefit or benefited Donald Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton, though he wouldn't go into detail about the particular investigation of particular Trump associates. And second, he also dismissed President Trump's allegation that President Obama had bugged him in Trump Tower. John, why why was Comey's testimony important? If it was important,
1: well, I um, so the two main pillars of it. One, you, you know, on the Russia question, the fact that he's investigating it and investigating whether there was potential con- collusion. That was important in terms of just kind of dispelling something uh, that was floating out there, sometimes um, encouraged by, by the president, which was that this was a phony, fake thing. You'll remember in his – the president's interview after he was elected in December with Chris Wallace on Fox – Uh, Sunday morning, the president said this whole notion that the Russians were trying to meddle in the election was fake news and was totally phony and was cooked up by the Democrats. He has since moved a little bit further towards the Intelligence Committee's views, but still prefers to kind of fuzzy things up. So this was the director of the FBI saying, this is a real thing. We've got real people investigating this. We're really looking into it. Secondarily, as a matter of um, just giving you some sense of what Washington will be like for the next several months, it also sent the signal that the FBI director is looking into a wide variety of things related to the, the president's election team. And and this is going to be with us for a while. He would not put an end date on the, on the investigation. This is going to be floating out there for a while. And then on the wiretap claim, it just, uh, you know, put that to rest in terms of this incendiary charge that the president made. Obviously, we're going to get to what Devin Nunes talked about. But I've often felt that the secondarily important thing about the wiretap claim was not whether it was right or wrong. Um It seems like uh, it was wrong based on the people who, who are in a position to know. But secondarily, it gave us some sense of the president's judgment with respect to the office of the presidency, how easily he would accuse his predecessor of doing something and of being, as the president said, a sick and bad person. There is a respect for the presidency that presidents usually hold and that they're and usually it keeps them from attacking specifically the, their predecessor. It's why presidents go to the library ceremonies for their predecessors even though they may have run against them is that they respect the office itself and that the reason you have that respect is that that's one of the reasons you can have Democrats who say I don't like anything Donald Trump stands for but I respect the office of the presidency and therefore I respect that he is the president's president and we've found some continuity in our American system because people respect the office at some level and so what we've got now is some pretty clear indication of how easily the president would trade away that part of the sacred part of the presidency, um, just in a series of tweets accusing his predecessor of this, that's part of the presidential furniture that, that usually gets a little bit more care from the person in the office. Emily, there
0: are people who say that if the Russian government meddled in the United States election in 2016, meddled to the advantage of one candidate who then was elected president and that candidate has you know potentially had associates who were even talking with the russians and colluding with the russians over that that that's the biggest political scandal in this century or in the in the last century yet it doesn't feel that way it doesn't feel that this is headed in a watergate style direction to me it still feels like it's completely partisan because republican republicans in congress don't want to they don't want to engage at that level do you think there's anything that makes this break out from being a partisan scandal
2: Well, I think the missing ingredient for the level of scandal you're talking about is evidence of coordination or collusion. And in the drip drip of news on this topic, on Wednesday night, CNN had a story that unnamed Department of Justice officials said there was coordination, evidence of coordination between the Trump campaign and the Russians about the timing of damaging leaks about the hacks into the DNC emails. So. That's an unnamed source story. I'm sure that President Trump will dismiss it as fake news and they'll be fighting about that. But if that evidence solidifies and we start to have specifics behind it, I think it becomes harder for the Republicans to ignore this. And the other thing is, you know, Devin Nunes' intervention on Wednesday, Nunes who's supposed to be heading the House committee investigating Trump gets this like, I think, basically irrelevant, maybe information about the idea that some Trump people that there was incidental uh, intelligence collected about them, which I think means as I get I mean, this is just such a confusing cloud of a story. What I wanted to focus on was Nunes's conduct and all this, but the incidental part seems to be the idea that, you know, there was an investigation, the, um, intelligence agencies are listening to foreign agents, which they're allowed to do, and there is in- collection incidentally of communications involving Trump associates. So Nunes takes this piece of information, which does not really relate to Trump's wild accusations against President Obama. And he runs to Trump with it, which is without briefing his own committee, and then goes public with it. Some of it seems like it could have been classified. I mean, it's such bizarre behavior, in my view, for the head of the House Intelligence Committee supposed to be investigating the Trump story. And so, you know, John McCain said, look, it's time for a select committee. Now, McCain has been an outlier among the Republicans in being willing to kind of take Trump on and take this story seriously. But at some point, there's just like a melting of credibility. And it also seemed important to me this week that the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which is normally like rock solid Republican conservative, wrote just a scathing editorial about Trump. So maybe there's like enough crack starting in the edifice. But I think what's hard for me about the story, and I'm sorry, I'm running on for so long, is that it's gotten to the point where I can't even remember what we already knew. Like <laughs> there's so many loops of information and some of them are confirmed and some of them aren't. And it just starts to swirl and you feel like you it's hard to know what's really significant in all of this. And that's like, I'm, I'm trying to steel myself against that because it feels dangerous to lose sight of how crazy this actually is. That's
1: why at the end of the week, you really need something that kind of brings it all together. <laughs> um, like, Anyway, uh, the yeah. or like face the uh, our show. <laughs> um, the, the um the curious thing, uh, Devin Nunes' um press conference and then briefing of the White House was really uh, odd, again, because we're gonna know ultimately what it is that he's talking about. And so again, like the president's claim that Barack Obama wiretapped him. When he made the claim, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, it put it into the system where it ultimately was going to be adjudicated, and we would know now. People will say, "Well, there have been instances in which the president's been fact-checked before, and it hasn't cost him anything." I think a, it does cost him, and b, when you insert it inside a uh, a formal proceeding, it makes it harder to get away from. Um, there are there is testimony like the testimony we had from the FBI director this week, who said, "No wiretap." Um, that creates a different moment than just you know. Glenn Kessler of the Washington Post, fact-checking the president, uh, as good as those fact-checks may may be. And so I think what you're – so here you have the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Ultimately, we're going to find out, was this a situation in which, say, a foreign country that is being surveilled as a part of the normal way of doing things calls the Trump uh, campaign and says, congratulations on your victory? And that is the incidental collection. Um, So why does that matter? Because what we're doing is we're going to be able to render a decision on – on how Devin Nunes uh, sifts through information. He got some information here. Was that information worth the actions that he then took afterwards, or did he overreact, or did he underreact? But it's now a baseline way to make a judgment about the chairman of this committee. Here's what I don't understand. So Trump, the reason why I
0: assume that Trump ended up in this situation is that he had a campaign which was staffed by, like, by incompetence and bad apples because he didn't he just didn't have the sort of professionals working for him he had to pay people with histories people terrible histories working for him because he had he was running this kind of catch can campaign and so he ended up with people like paul manafort who'd been you know doing the bidding of russian billionaires and you know sleazily tied up with putin for years of michael flynn who was getting putin money on the side of roger stone who is like literally a nixon dirty trickster and so it is not a surprise that these incompetent and nefarious people who were working for his campaign did these bad things. I don't see why he just doesn't sort of say, you know what, we, we had some people working for us who behaved unethically. Uh, I'm really disappointed. And, uh, you know, they know these are no people who no longer have any contact or connection with my administration. Michael Flynn has been, you know, fired. Paul Manafort was fired. And just like. Just sort of sort of says, "Oh yeah, we were guilty, but these are people who this wasn't me. These were these, but that's these like an bad imaginary."
2: Apples this is an imaginary president trump i mean i know but i don't see why
0: he doesn't just do it it's like it's so much easier to do it
3: just of course but
2: it's also so much easier not to send a crazy tweet on a saturday accusing president obama of tapping you with two keys with no evidence i mean none of this like comey's testimony this you know direct refutation as gentle as comey tried to be of the president by the fbi director this is all unforced errors this is trump like making the russia story grow into a mushroom cloud hanging over his own head. The FBI would be quietly going about his investigation. We would have had a week focused on Neil Gorsuch, who looks the part of the Supreme Court justice, however conservative he is, and we will get to that. And, you know, some discussion of the health care bill. Instead, we're like mired in the Russia mud. And that's because of Trump's personality and his deep predilection to conspiracy theorize and to defend himself no matter what and make himself into the victim.
1: True. And part of what Devin Nunes is doing and and certainly part of what the president is doing is there have been all of these leaks, which are Not in themselves kosher either. People who don't like Donald Trump think they're just great because they got hurt him. But everything that's leaked that's bad for Donald Trump does not turn out to necessarily be true. And there is a cost. And that cost is – there are lots of costs. But one of the costs is it makes a president feel under siege, Devin Nunes feel under siege, and then they react. They think, well, all rules are now being broken by the leakers. And remember, the leakers are people who have sworn in their jobs to keep secrets. So they're doing an extra uh, illegal thing and so they think we're under siege by all of these leaks we're going to break we're going to bend the rules break the rules now you can you can have an argument about who started what first but it is uh, there is a contributory factor here that's um, that these leaks create an, an environment of uh, chaos as well
0: John I'm interested in the question of whether this Comey investigation just can or the FBI investigation is just now going to be completely free to go where they want to go it seems to me that Comey, by being so public about this, has made himself bulletproof. Trump can't fire him. Congress can't rein him in. That This investigation, he can – if he wants to pursue this investigation to the ends of the earth, he is now free to pursue it because any firing of him or shutting him down, it will be very, very bad for – the Trump administration the Republican.
1: That makes sense to me. I think also given the uh, defending of Comey that was done uh, in terms of his handling of the Hillary Clinton emails, I think also gives him some uh, considerable political protection. The danger is you know, clearly the CNN report about the FBI finding some possible connections between the Trump campaign and and, uh, and the Russians trying to leak information about Hillary Clinton. Boy, that felt like a response to uh, stuff that was said about the FBI in the hearing and or in the news. So like now that the F- – if the FBI gets in on the leak game – uh, which it has mostly stayed out of, right? Uh, yeah. That's bad. Oh, that's, we think.
2: I mean, it's hard to know, right? That's we do where all these leaks are coming
1: from. That's bad for all the high horse reasons I said earlier, but also because if you think that the ultimate goal here from Vladimir Putin, and this certainly seems to be every Russia expert uh, makes this case, uh, if his ultimate goal was to destroy U.S. institutions and make it them look chaotic with no left-right, uh, we're not really caring about that at all. Just hoping f- his big goal is chaos. Then we're in really good shape for chaos. We're really, you know, when when Adam Schiff comes out and says that Devin Nunes basically, Adam Schiff being the ranking Democrat on the committee, basically says the chairman of the committee is un brushes up against saying he's unfit to to run the committee. That is the chaos of which uh, Vladimir Putin has been dreaming in the the dozy hours of his days in the Daca. Um, You know, that's good chaos. FBI leaking from inside. That's great chaos. So uh, there's a cost to all this.
2: I agree with that. But I also think it's so I've been kind of obsessing about the separations of powers and kind of institutional checks and balances that all of this raises. And so one way to think about the leaking from the career staffers at the FBI and the other intelligence and, and anywhere in the federal bureaucracy is that it's like a, alarm bells are going off. It's because other better checks and balances aren't working. If the congressional committees aren't doing a real job of investigation, and I don't see how you can leave Devin Nunes in charge of this committee and think that, you know, it's going to be fair and... um And impartial, then you you make the intelligence people feel like they don't have any choice that basically like there's the press and there's publicity as a way of ensuring that this investigation doesn't get shut down. And let's also remember that the FBI director works for the Justice Department and President Trump. While I agree with you about the politics of firing Comey, legally, Trump does have the power to fire Comey. This is all happening within the executive branch and the courts are not, as the sort of third branch of power, are not yet really relevant to this whole discussion. We don't have an independent prosecutor law anymore. And there were problems with that law. But that law involved the courts more in an appointment of, you know, a kind of special prosecutor. Now it's really just up to Jeff Sessions or if he's truly recused himself up to the deputy uh, um, attorney general to decide whether to appoint a special prosecutor. So part of what you're seeing, John, while there certainly is a cost, is an indication that all these other potential checks and balances are not quite functioning right. It's like all the fire alarms are going off from the point of view of the leakers.
0: This episode of the Fest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or, sister or friend, an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting Auraframes.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Neil Gorsuch waltzed toward his confirmation as Supreme Court Justice this week. The Senate Judiciary Committee held hearings. He, John roberts did. He was calm. He was reasonable. He revealed nothing interesting. Uh, he was seemed to be a fine human being uh, with, with uh, nice things to say, but in all the right ways. He avoided anything political. He avoided judicial controversies. He handled the softball questions that were thrown to him by Republicans very easily. Of course, he would investigate the president. You know, he ran into little bits of trouble of dissent. He had written in a case involving a trucker who was fired after he saved his own life. The trucker drove his truck to safety in dangerously cold conditions and was fired. You know, he he was tweaked a little bit about things he'd done when he'd worked for the Bush administration approving torture. But basically, you know, he's got it. It's in the bag he will be confirmed without a problem. Emily, was there ever going to be a chance that this went some other direction, some other way?
2: I think that Neil Gorsuch was poised to handle these confirmation hearings. Um it would have taken like a lobotomy to change that. I mean, this is a person who really maybe has imagined himself on the Supreme Court since law school, if not earlier. it's there's just he's perfectly positioned to take advantage of this vacancy and I mean, Make no mistake, this is a deeply conservative jurist. This is a person who is going to pull to the court to the right. He has, you know, suggested that he has some actually pretty radical ideas about reining in the Constitution in terms of, you know, the more expansive interpretations that the Supreme Court majority has allowed for in the last decades or at least years, and also for dismantling the um, power of federal agencies. And yet, He says it all with this kind of calm demeanor that made it quite difficult for the senators to catch him off balance. I think Al Franken was, you know fairly effective in questioning him, especially about the frozen trucker case. I was surprised. Franken was trying to get Gorsuch to say, like, if you'd been that guy in the middle of the night with a truck where you were freezing and your brakes weren't working, would you have stuck around and maybe risked your life? And was it fair that you got fired? And Gorsuch wouldn't even answer that. But he kept saying, I have empathy for this person. And even though the dissent he wrote in that case is devoid of empathy, it's like anti-empathy. If someone avers in the moment that they have empathy, it's like hard to figure out how to address that. So I think, you know, these hearings are very dull at this point. They're like a ritual that we go through that doesn't yield real information. It's like a cat and mouse game. And I think Gorsuch won that game.
1: I wonder the two questions for you, Emily one, it is a cat and mouse game, but does the structure as it exists now, uh, create the conditions that make that basically mean you can't nominate a whole class of people because even though it's deadly dull in the end isn't that in part because he has all these special talents for not answering questions and therefore does that lop off a huge set of people so it does serve and i don't know whether the function it serves is good or bad i don't know but it it does actually serve a function in the sense that you have to run all through all these traps so i don't know whether it's good or bad but that's one question second one is Has this – has it changed the way lawyers and judges behave over let's say post-bork that basically you – if you are ambitious, you have to constantly tend to your – Statements like a bonsai tree to make sure that you never say or do anything.
2: Yeah, I mean, both of your questions yield the same answer, which is that, I mean, one of the reasons that Gorsuch could handle these hearings well is that there is very little in his entire record that causes him trouble. I mean, there are suggestions. So he's certainly given enough nods to the Federalist Society and to conservatives that he will be what they want on the court. But he hasn't said the kinds of flamethrowing things Things That, you know, make him see- easy for the Democrats to caricature. And so, yes, the answer to both your questions is that it is much, much easier to be confirmed to the Supreme Court if you have fly your record the entire way through to give just enough hints without setting off any, you know, real and, bells. But and, also and that's yeah.
0: But also to to John's point, Emily, is that it's that they essentially the pool of people they're willing to consider for these positions is also this pool of people who have had very narrow work and yes. life experience. It's very, very narrow. They're Ivy League graduates, worked professionally in law as appeals court judges, solicitor general's office, and that's about it. Like there's right. no, nobody then- else.
2: And then if you when you check the box of, for example, government service, which Gorsuch did by working in the Department of Justice for seven months during the Bush administration, and you write memos which seem to be, you know, approving of torture, at least like signing on to the idea that it's effective and Providing grounds for President Bush to append a signing statement that, you know, challenged the ability of Congress to tell him that he couldn't approve waterboarding and other techniques. When you do that, then you say, well, I was just acting like the government's lawyer in that capacity, making an argument my client wanted to be, wanted made. And I'm not, that doesn't reflect my beliefs necessarily. So they're just all these, you know, ways in which, um, you can distance yourself from your service and make it seem very bland. So one thing that came up a few times during the hearings Gorsuch is an originalist which means that per Scalia he believes in interpreting the constitution in its big capacious phrases in terms of the public meaning of those words at the time that they were written right this is like you go back and you look at the federalist papers and what did you know Alexander Hamilton think he meant he was saying and Gorsuch has made it very clear that's his position, but he said to the committee, I'm not taking us back to horse and buggy days. So, like, why not? <laughs> that was, like, the question I wanted Franken or White House or Feinstein to say, like, well, well, oh, well why aren't you? What did, what else do you think you're doing?
1: Well, didn't Feinstein say that? She said, if you're originalist, then we'd still have, you know, slaves being three-fourths of a person, and we'd still have women not having the vote. I thought she did. Oh, I thought good. she did Maybe say she that, did. but... By the way, total aside, I think I just – so I was um, I was studying Missouri versus Holland, uh, Emily, the migratory bird case from 1920 as a part of my whistle stop this week awesome. because it led to the Bricker Amendment, which is what the whistle stop is about. But I didn't realize that that was the case. A migratory bird case is where Oliver Wendell Holmes first articulates the idea of a living constitution, which is the alternative to the strict constructionalism. Anyway – so uh, that's there you go.
2: Excellent little footnote. Well, I'm glad that Feinstein did that. I should have. But anyway, I do feel like if there isn't a strong argument on the merits against Gorsuch for the Democrats to make, it is the yes, you are dragging us back to the horse and buggy days. And also, you are clearly siding with big corporate interests versus workers. I mean, Franken was setting that up along with Feinstein. So I assume when folks vote against him, that will be why.
1: What does it mean? in So there's the Feinstein example, which he would, of course, say. Say, well, no, I'm not taking us back to when you know women couldn't vote and and uh, slavery. So, what is the more practical way of asking that question that that challenges an, uh, an originalist on a on a current thing where it's not you know easily dismissible as it would be for anybody to say like, no, I'm not taking us back to the you know. Well, I think that
2: the follow-up, I mean, I don't know if you get a decent answer from this, but like the sincere follow-up is like, well, why aren't you? If your originalism is truly held, then why can, um, well, women can have the vote because we amended the Constitution in that direction. But Brown versus Board is, you know, which obviously um, was supposed to end segregation of schools, is not why the 14th Amendment was written. Now, Scalia got around that by calling himself a faint-hearted originalist. but um and gorsuch interestingly wouldn't use the word agree for brown versus board he was like dancing around that and so maybe that was his way of dealing with this but they're all originalists make some exceptions right yeah. i mean why can't you whip people anymore since cruel and unusual punishment certainly allowed for that in the 18th century there's a limit, and it's a chosen discretionary limit. And since he, Gorsuch successfully refused to answer any question about any past decision of the Supreme Court <laughs> that he didn't offer up himself, I would say like that more abstract set of questions. Actually, Ramesh Panuru had a really good list um, of more kind of abstract theoretical questions that might have been harder for Gorsuch to duck.
0: I, I just want to remind you that Ulysses S. Grant was the first person to write beautifully on the living constitution john oh was he i'm going to read you my favorite quote which i've read on the show many times the framers were wise in their (laughs) generation and want to do the very best possible to secure their own liberty and independence and also that of their descendants to latest days it is preposterous to suppose that the people of one generation can lay down the best and only rules of government for all who are to come after them and under unforeseen contingencies anyway then he goes on and on and he is we could not and ought not to be rigidly bound by the rules laid down under circumstances so different for emergencies so utterly unanticipated. The fathers themselves would have been the first to declare that their prerogatives were not irrevocable.
2: If Scalia were being succeeded by a conservative judge who is not an originalist, originalism might sort of die a quiet death on the Supreme Court. I mean, Clarence Thomas subscribes subscribes to it, but he does lots of things all by himself. And Alito and Roberts are not really originalists, so instead we're going to have it like really continue in the hands of someone who, let's not forget, is an excellent writer and debater and arguer. And uh, yeah, and so
0: the and so what. Here's a question, John. Why aren't Republicans just vastly stretching this hearing out? Why are they letting it go by so quickly and trying to get him confirmed? It's the best thing that they've got going
1: on. The best thing that they would have going on would still be pretty damn good if he were confirmed to the Supreme Court because they would be able to say, we just got this guy uh, confirmed Plus, to the Supreme Court. Plus, they want him court. on
3: the court,
2: before get, right, they the they court do want rules him, right. on the travel ban.
1: All the chaos that is part of the Trump administration and all the nervousness that it is causing Republicans is mitigated considerably by the fact that he is making good on this promise and that um, and that it's not just that he happened to pick a guy out of the blue who happens to p- people like him. It's that he identified the Federalist Society long ago, was successful in handing over a portion of his campaign to them so that this is not only a good end result, but the process that he followed was very good with respect to the way conservatives, well, the Federalist Society identified him, many well, people, but many people, and, yeah. many people identified. Uh, I mean, think of all the pro free traders who identified Donald Trump and weren't able to convince him. I mean, so yes, there was good work on the part of the Federalist Society in working with the the nominee. Or yeah, I guess he. Did I guess when he was has a nominee. To, that's right. because he
0: actually has beliefs about trade, and he doesn't have any beliefs or knowledge about the law, and so he just went where, which was where it's expedient, in my view. I mean, is there any is
2: the best way to get socially conservative people to vote for you and Trump and his people realized that and they put Len Leo of the Federal Society in the driver's seat. And that was totally smart.
0: Could you make an argument, John, that, OK, this is the most important thing that Trump has done. The most important fact of his his victory was this. And now Republicans can be like, let's now we can shunt him aside. This thing is passed. He is just so dangerous in all these other respects. He's damaging the brand so much.
1: Let's move on. Mm. That's an interesting theory. I well, there is this. There is there are future court picks which are important. That would be number one.
2: Isn't there also just the fact that the Republican base is still sticking with him in the polls? I uh, mean, that seems like it's e- important, right? That
1: is quite important, and also we're seeing an interesting experiment, which we'll talk about uh, uh, tomorrow. But in the in the transitive tr- uh, properties, do I mean that? Um, <laughs> His ability to transfer his political power into a weapon and use it on other people. I mean, obviously, as you quite rightly point out, Emily, he has a lot of sway over Republicans because of his power in the base. But he does apparently not have so much sway that he can get conservatives to do what he wants on the American Health Care Act. Now, he may prevail when we ultimately have this conversation. But even if he does prevail – it was not a switch he could flip. In other words, I have power with the, your constituents. Do what I say or you'll get in trouble. He had to you know, cajole them with, uh, with goodies and so it suggests there are limits to the significant power he has uh, in the Republican base.
2: Well, and they may decide that power, you know, in light, particularly of a deeply unpopular bill, which this Ryan Trump care bill is, even with Republican voters, you know that that's like maybe the limit. And and because we're hitting, we're this is the issue so early in his term that may you know show him to be a paper tiger. We'll see.
3: It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash.
0: Of Orlando, Florida, the first African-American elected prosecutor in Florida announced that she would not seek the death penalty for any cases that her office will handle. In particular, in the case of an accused cop killer named Markeith Lloyd, Ayala announced her total opposition shortly after Florida revamped its death penalty provisions to require a unanimous vote of the jury to impose death Previously, amazingly, shockingly, it had just been a majority of the jury had to vote for death for there to be death. Rick Scott, the Republican governor of Florida, responded by removing Ayala, a Democrat, from this Lloyd case and putting it in the hands of a special prosecutor. Emily, sometimes we want prosecutors to have discretion. Sometimes we don't want them to have discretion. Do we want to give them the choice, lots of latitude about who to charge for things, or do we not want to give them lots of latitude about who to what to charge people with.
2: Well, they have lots of latitude. So then I think the question this raises, at least for me, is if a prosecutor rules out a particular punishment for a whole class of defendants, do we think that the governor should be able to come in and take cases away from her, given that she's the elected representative of the people of Orlando and she represents a slightly bigger district than Orlando in Florida, Death penalty, most prosecutors in this country haven't charged the death penalty. It's usually reserved for a small number of cases. But when a police officer is killed, there is usually the most pressure to charge the death penalty. Now, Ayala has a useful card to play in this case, which is that the family of the victim did not want a death penalty prosecution. But she obviously made a broader statement. She ruled out the death penalty for anyone else during her tenure, which is unusual to take that position kind of in advance. And however, there are other prosecutors around the country who are making these kinds of statements about other kinds of charges, like I'm not going to bring low-level marijuana possession charges anymore, those kinds of distinctions. And so in some ways, that's a different question of prosecutorial discretion than making a decision about a particular case. But we have normally thought that that is very much within a district attorney's powers. And then the remedy is if the voters don't like it, they can vote her out. But Florida has this, I think, really weird statutory provision that gives the governor a lot of power to bring in a different prosecutor if he thinks that it like serves the interests of justice. It's kind of a crazy statute. So Ayala is going to challenge Scott's actions here. And to me, what's the most interesting is that this is kind of a test case for progressive prosecutors. There was a group of them elected around the country in November, some of them, including Ayala, with um, Soros funding behind them. And some of them like her African-American or Latino. And so there's this just interesting dynamic going on about whether old ideas about how elected DAs have to be like law and order and perceived as tough on crime in order to get reelected. Is that really true? Or can we have particularly blue cities in which a different kind of um, approach to being a prosecutor is actually rewarded? I think that's what we're seeing here.
1: In an environment where being tough on crime at a national level has been a part of the presidential conversation in a way it hasn't been since the 60s.
2: Exactly. Well, maybe you could
1: argue a little bit. in The 80s. In, yeah. You could Sorry. say the 80s. Sorry, especially. forgot about the 80s. <laughs> Strike that. Since the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: But you're still right. And also there's this moment where there's a bipartisan growing, not consensus, but interest in criminal justice reforms. So you have groups like Right on Crime who are part of the mix as well.
0: I mean, but what this points out to me is two two main things. One is that elected judicial officials are a perversion and an abomination in all respects. So it is abominable. Elected to, DAs. Elected DAs, elected sheriffs, elected judges, all of them. B- bad idea. We should have laws that are made by legislatures and, you know, the, the, the voters are essentially approving. And then you have professionals who are you know, serve in a nonpartisan way, professional serving to carry out those laws, and execute those laws. The idea that how the law is being carried out in a place is determined by how, you know, the the political will, uh the whims of somebody who's has to run for reelection is terrible. And it's terrible when it's the police officer in the sh- case of sheriffs. It's terrible when it's the prosecutor in the case of prosecutors and it's terrible with judges it shouldn't be and i think there's a this like this the second piece of this which is the unit by which we make laws in this country is a state so states decide what the criminal law in that state is and that's done legislatively with governors and then with state constitutions and state supreme courts interpreting it and here we have this weird conflict because you have the state has determined that capital punishment is the appropriate punishment for certain kinds of criminal activity. You know, that's the decision of the people of the state of Florida. And then you have a second entity, which is inserting itself, which is saying, no, we our local decision is that we don't we don't want capital punishment. We're not going to have capital punishment in our jurisdiction. I think it's that's a just it's
2: really a, it's a I
0: problematic like, situation.
2: I don't think so. I feel like that's just like another layer of federalism playing out where you have in Florida, there are these judicial districts. They're not even like counties, which is confusing. That's how they elect prosecutors in Florida. But just imagine for a moment, because this is true in most states, you're talking about like counties versus state in terms of law enforcement. The idea that you would have a more local set of decisions made about how to enforce state law seems to me like a good rather than a bad thing, because then you can expose tensions in the way that different constituencies think about the justice and wisdom of these laws. And you can see local experiments playing out about how to enforce no, it if, 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 if,
0: if, if, if killing somebody in this particular way you know or, if, or if possessing you know cocaine in in Orlando is a crime uh, that's punishable by you know you know 2 years in prison state prison then possessing uh, cocaine 1 mile over the border in some suburb of Orlando should be the same thing it's like the, that's the state we've decided that the state is the is the is the unit of analysis here
2: well, except that prosecutors always have tremendous discretion. They just do. We, you're imagining a kind of uniform approach to law enforcement that's impossible. Yes,
0: prosecutors should have dis- tr- tremendous discretion. But when you have politically elected prosecutors, it gets all screwy, and that's why that's completely confounds all of it. I mean, I agree. Huh. With there, I, I, I actually don't care about capital punishment as an issue. I think it is totally overblown. I think the left wastes way too much time on it. That's neither here nor there. I don't object to the idea that you you would have a, a prosecutor on the left, uh, you know, making a stand on this. But I just do think that elected prosecutors in general expose these kinds of these fault lines and problems. And we shouldn't we shouldn't be so eager to to have them. And so we definitely shouldn't be. We definitely shouldn't be eager to have differential enforcement of justice in in states, depending on where you live and who your sheriff and who your prosecutor happens to be.
2: Huh. Well, I'm pretty sure that there are only four states in the country where our district attorneys are not elected. One of them happens to be Connecticut, where I live. So I would have been very sympathetic to that argument like a year or two ago. Yeah, but
0: because now they're progressive prosecutors being elected. No, so now no, you're no. <laughs> now you're not sympathetic to the argument anymore. <laughs> no, That's exactly what the case point. is. Emily. Go ahead, OK, go ahead.
2: Wait, wait, let me say one more thing before you hang me for hypocrisy here. What I was going to say is that prosecutorial power has been growing a great deal since the 70s or 80s for a variety of reasons, mostly having to do with the um, uh, insight of uh, Fordham law professor John Pfaff about how much felony charging has increased. But also, you know, you can add in like the sentencing increases and mandatory minimums and etc. So you have this question about how to pull back prosecutors from over-punishing people. And traditionally, people who have studied this have turned to the courts to do that, right? So you have this third branch. They're the ones who are supposed to rein the prosecutors in. Or maybe you look at the legislature, like you were saying, and you say, come on, state, stop giving them all these like huge tools, weapons to, to club people over the head with. It's up to you. Neither of those checks and balances have worked terribly well. That leaves this question of whether actually public accountability and democracy and electing prosecutors might yield prosecutors who more closely reflect the will of the local people. So I'm interested in watching that unfold a little bit. And I also should mention here this super amazing Deceased Harvard Law School professor named William Stunts who wrote a really important book about the criminal justice system and kind of asking about how we elect prosecutors as opposed to just coming out and opposing them at all and pointing out the difference between having A prosecutor who represents a city and is elected by only those city voters versus someone who's elected in this more countywide or, you know, larger district and ends up having a lot of suburban voters who are not terribly affected by either violent crime because they're not usually the victims of it. And they're also not the people who are being processed by the criminal justice system. So Stunts talks a lot about that problem for elections. And that's been a reason traditionally why you've had very conservative, tough law order prosecutors in power even in democratic strongholds anyway
0: wait, but doesn't that argue doesn't that tell you that this system for election is a is a terrible flaw and we should
2: well i mean maybe we shouldn't we shouldn't
0: re-experiment with it we should try to abolish it that i can't imagine i cannot imagine that there are a lot of countries in the world where sheriffs prosecutors and judges are elected the way they are. No,
2: the right you're state. right. I mean on the And that's because it's a, not it's an abomination. Like, I don't know. I guess I'm I just feel a little agnostic about that right now. because And maybe you're right. Again, I'm being results-oriented. But I do think it's possible that the when you look at the patterns, most prosecutors get reelected. Whether the crime rate goes up or down, whatever their conviction rate was, it's not clear, actually, that you have to be you know, the tough on crime DA to satisfy the voters. That's been an assumption that has played out. But as crime is declining, there's an opportunity for a different kind of approach. And that's... that's... That's what this latest wave of elected prosecutors represents, and we haven't really seen what the results are yet. If it turned out that in democratic cities where there are voters who are interested in a different approach, that this yielded a different approach pretty effectively and crime didn't rise and, you know, the voters were satisfied with it and it actually yielded better behaving prosecutors than the very weak checks and balances we get from judges and legislatures, like maybe electing prosecutors would look okay. Anyway, we'll Can I? Uh,
1: breaking news. <gentle speech accessories> uh, Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader of the Senate, has announced that, not unexpectedly, that the um, Senate Democrats are going to filibuster the Gorsuch nomination. Senator Casey from Pennsylvania, is one of the 10 Democrats in states that Trump won. Uh, Has said he will vote no against Gorsuch. So now we have the question of whether the senator – whether Republicans will invoke the so-called nuclear option, which is to say try and pass Gorsuch on a simply majority line vote or whether enough Democrats will go over – uh, and vote for him. So, like, what does Michael Bennett do? Who introduced Gorsuch, Democrat from Colorado, as a home state senator? Senator might does he vote for Gorsuch in the end? What does you know Claire McCaskill do? Heidi Heitkamp, others that are up for reelection.
2: Joe Manchin.
1: Joe Manchin of West Virginia up for reelection. What does he do? So, this could be the part in an expected drama, which is okay. We're going to filibuster, but but we know also that that's not really going to threaten his nomination because there are going to be enough Democrats to cross over. Why why are they bothering to filibuster this, Emily?
0: Why?
2: Because the Democratic base sees that this is a deeply conservative Supreme Court justice who's going to behave like Antonin Scalia in many ways and does not want him on the court, and Schumer doesn't want to um, and that, and they right. This is like a win for both bases. I mean, the conservative base would love for this to be how the Senate gets rid of the filibuster much better this time than when it's, you know, a Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Stephen Breyer or Anthony Kennedy retirement. So they're like totally eager for this. And, and then I think the question is what John said whether Schumer knows that there are enough Democrats who are going to. Cross over that he can make this play satisfy the base, hopefully, and then walk the line.
1: Right, yeah. Make this play satisfy the base, raise the money necessary. Uh, you know, use this as a fundraising tool for all the liberal groups that are rallying. Also, there's restiveness in the the liberal base for some real opposition. Ever, anything yeah. that's short of blocking everything that Donald Trump does is normalizing him. And this, there's also a lot of. um understandable anger about the way merrick garland was um was handled not even giving him a hearing so that's that's why you do that even though you may have on the side made a deal that that makes it certain that gorsuch actually will clear the 60 vote threshold i think i
0: misunderstood something here do you think they are filibustering because they do have 41 or and really and they want the and then the filibuster will be blown up or are they filibustering because they actually don't have forty-one votes. They won't lose the filibuster because the filibuster they're going to get cloture with sixty.
1: Right. I think they. Th- I think the most to squeeze the maximum advantage out of this as a Democrat, you want to have the filibuster fight so that your left sees you out there fighting, and yet ultimately lose the filibuster fight, which is to say get 60 votes, which allows eight of your Democrats who are in tough states, allows them to cross over and say, as a matter of principle, the president gets to name their person. And while I have disagreements with Donald Trump on all kinds of things, we always want Democrats to be able to have their nominees go through, basically give the Lindsey Graham thing, but from the Democratic side, so that your at risk Democrats who will fight the president on 10 other things between now and election day have one thing that they can use to woo their voters where they say look I'm not a total knee jerk liberal, you know, type. Let's go to
0: cocktail chatter when you have one magnificent astonishing thing to tell your dear loved ones. What is it going to be? Emily
2: I am really interested in the changes the Trump administration is making to Obama administration or Obama era, era policies. And there are two this week. So the Department of Education looks like it's poised to roll back the limits set on for-profit colleges. The Obama folks had this rule called the Gainful Employment Rule, which meant that um, if you were a for-profit college and many of your graduates were just making zero money and saddled with a ton of debt, that would get your for-profit college in trouble in terms of whether it could um, receive federal Pell Grants and other federal money. And it looks like the Department of Education is going to get rid of this rule, even though there was just rapacious abuse by for-profit Colleges of low-income students. There's a good new book on this by Tressie McMillan Cottom. You know, the notion that we don't need to <laughs> to set rules for pro- for-profit colleges when we are the ones, s- the taxpayers subsidizing this form of education, just infuriates me. Um, to see people scammed by these schools and then know that we're the ones shelling out the money for these worthless programs.
0: Well, we subsidize not for profit education too but i think yeah the, and of
2: the, the schools that have been shown to you know really take advantage of students and fleece them right. 98% of them are for profit schools
1: like nobody yeah. going to harvard is defaulting i mean it's a very 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 small number of people who go to harvard who default on their loans but the number of people who go to and isn't the trap emily that because there's no underwriting of College loans, which is to say, the loan isn't based on your future earning percentage. That there's no normally a mechanism would kick in, and a for-profit college, which has these horrible results of actually teaching people skills that they can then go out and use to make money to then pay back a loan. Normally, if there was underwriting, you would look at the students who went to those schools and say, "I'm not giving you a loan because you'll never be able to pay it back." But because there isn't that, you have this system where people are given loans, they go to these colleges in which they don't learn anything, and then can't pay their loans back. Is that exactly. right? Okay. You
2: know, that is precisely right. That was, right. And a that was lot very of well students, said, John. I never that thought was about excellent. that. excellent. I know. You the used underwriting, underwriting as a verb absolutely correctly, a word that I'm never sure I really understand the meaning of. But I also just want to add a lot of the students who tend to get taken advantage of and caught up in these scams are veterans. Mm.
0: John Dickerson, mm. what is your chatter? Or do you uh, just want to Edit other people's chatter. Yes, exactly. Magnificently edit
1: them. (laughs) Well, I just wanted to add a little uh, something to the story about uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. He uh, went on this uh, trip to Asia. Didn't take the press. Took one member of the press, the uh, Aaron McPike from the Independent Journal Review, who did an interview with him in which he said that. he said a number of extraordinary things. He one, really
2: did. One was that he said he <laughs> I, did,
1: I didn't want this job. My wife told me I was I'm supposed to do this.
2: My wife made me take out the garbage.
1: What gets cut out there a, a little bit to be uh, is that what what his wife said is God's not done with you yet, which is to say, like she encouraged him because he had something to contribute to the country and to the cause. Anyway, but my, that's not my point. My point is that in this interview, he said the reason he didn't take the press is. I'm not, you know, I don't need the glory. I don't need to to see myself in the press, which is obviously a total misunderstanding of of the role that the press plays. A, you want the press there because diplomats say incredibly nuanced things and you want to make sure at least the American press gets the precise meaning you meant, particularly when you perhaps get a comma wrong and can create an international incident. So you want your your country's reporters there to be able to explain what you meant if things go awry. You don't want to leave that up to the reporters in another country. And also, obviously, it misunderstands the role of the press. If you say that the only reason you would have them with you is because you were a glory hound, they're there to represent the people in whose name you're doing the business. But what an insight that somebody gave me into the administration and into his role, I thought was interesting on this point, which is the reason he's focused on showing and saying, look, I'm not in this for personal glory, is that he is trying to work on his relationship with the president. And he needs to send the signal to the president that he's not – he doesn't support these stories that portray him as the adult who's going to save the world from Donald Trump, and so he needs to, in order to have a relationship with the president that can be effective, needs to make it absolutely clear, as far as the president's concerned, that he's not out there trying to play to his own press by making the president look bad, or else he undermines the relationship that's necessary, so for him to be able to make the case to the president to do something that his impulses might uh, suggest that he not do. Uh, so that there,
2: is. Totally wise. And also makes me think of our conversation about leaks as like a sign that things are just completely out of whack. I mean, you don't bring the press along as secretary of state, which is important for the reasons you just laid out, because your president is so pathetically egomaniacal that like he doesn't want his secretary of state to have any public profile. Okay, that's insane. Well,
1: I don't I don't know if I would go uh, that far. I was just trying no, to interpret the comment. No, you did I am. Oh, okay.
2: <laughs> the, I was just <laughs> interpreting
1: the comment about him saying, you know, I'm not in this for personal glory. I'm not in, you know, I don't talk to the press for the purposes of personal glory.
2: You didn't say any of that. I just think it is a sign of real strange, strange times.
0: My chatter, it's, NCAA tournament time, March Madness. And uh, the other week, I sat down with my youngest to watch a movie that I love, which is Hoosiers, which, John, I'm sure you've seen. Emily, have you seen it? Yes. And it was interesting. It, it hold, holds up very well. It's a wonderful movie. Gene Hackman stars as a gruff but lovable basketball coach. Except
1: who, there are no three-point plays in that movie, right? There's no three-point shot.
0: Oh, no three-point shot. Sorry. Yeah.
2: John, that's a real that's I'm a just saying. I'm of that. I,
1: I would find yeah, – anyway, go ahead.
2: Uh, yeah, that's a little and yet dated. they
0: still so it's about this this very small town in rural Indiana with a tiny high school tiny only a few boys who are on their basketball team, and this coach comes to this town um and uh leads this team to to greatness and it's a it's a wonderful movie, very heartwarming et cetera however. It was interesting to watch it in the context of Trump, actually, Mm. that it has this weird Trumpish overtones, which are surprising. So it's it's about this kind of backwater Midwestern small town, entirely white small town that's been left behind. And as like like the world is moving forward, it's sort of clearly a passe and and hickish. Like there's a lot of talk about how everyone thinks they're hicks. They bring in this bullying you know, bullying overblown white guy to run it and then he goes on and leads them to victory by defeating the big city high school filled with black people. It's and suddenly they're the uncomfortable. Sh- <laughs> the only black people who show up are the black people on the, you know, the kind of other team they're they're playing at a, you know, crucial moment. And they and, must
2: be defeated. And they're and defeated. Vanquished.
0: And they're defeated and vanquished. And it's a it's a little bit a little bit unsettling in a way that it wasn't when I saw it back in nineteen eighty six. It has shadows that that you see now. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lictie is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply network. And you can see all the Panoply shows at panoply.fm. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash gabfest. Our Twitter feed is at and Our email address is gabfest at slate. Dot com. Please subscribe to the Gabfest and iTunes and leave a comment and rating. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Please come to our live show at the Warner Theater on May 10th here in D.C. Slate.com slash live for tickets.